Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer gives us a look into why it's important for believers to be members of a local church body. Have you ever wondered why people join the church? Or better yet, have you ever wondered why people don't commit to joining the church? Pastor Heath takes us through God's Word, giving us an example of Unity's discipleship funnel and answering the question, is church membership biblical? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. What you just saw on screen there is uh, what we affectionately refer to as the, the unity funnel. And uh, it's not so much a human construct as it is a biblical path of discipleship. When you look at how the Bible prescribes for us to make disciples, uh, you're going to shake out into this kind of funnel-like pattern. At the very top of that funnel, you're going to see this more and more uh, throughout the church so that we can provide a very clear path of progression and growth for those who are here and a part of this church. At the very top here, you're experiencing uh, church uh, church, in this particular case, we're referring to it as a, the assembled bodies, body of believers here on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, that's something that most of us usually associate with church. We think of church, that's often what we think about, and it's, it's an important part of what we do. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 talks about that it's so important that we are not to neglect the assembling of, of ourselves together like this. He says, as is the manner of some, that means there's some people out there right now who are mowing the grass. Some people, you know, maybe out in the lake, you know, catching fish. Some, but not you, because you are committed to being a mature disciple. And you understand that the beginning of that is entering into the funnel itself and entering into church and becoming a meaningful part of what we do here. Um, but is that enough to make a, a healthy disciple? Just preaching to large groups of people. Many churches feel it is, but I would argue that it's not. Not according to the example of the early church. In Acts chapter two, uh, we see that uh, the, the church is founded and formed, and it says in verse 46 and 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God. They didn't just do big church, did they? They also gathered together in smaller groups into homes. Uh, we see that pattern again in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. It says, in every day, not just Sunday, uh, but every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And so church isn't just isolated to a single event on a Sunday morning, is it? They would gather in homes for the breaking of bread, another way of saying that they fellowship together. Beyond that, it says that they... that not all the church every day, but various members of the church, they're gathering together day by day, that every day there's, that believers then were looking to connect in a vital and meaningful way to other believers. And it says that they would gather in the temple. Now, this does not mean that they had church every day, okay? Uh, their gathering in the temple was likely on the portico of Solomon. They would, it was a meeting place, a gathering place. They're going there because they want to connect with people who understand them, who, who think like them, who long for and worship the same God that we do. And moreover, they would go to the temple for the express purpose of sharing the gospel. It says they were proclaiming that Christ, you know, is the Lord. And so 
the church has all kinds of different activities that we do throughout the week. That church is not isolated to this singular event that we do here on Sunday morning. That it was far more than that. Even when the ministry left Jerusalem for the uttermost parts of the earth, we see that the example, even in the Gentile churches, Paul said in Acts 20, 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. But how did he teach them? Publicly and from house to house. And so the New Testament model goes from church to these smaller groups. These, you know, and call it what you want. You know, if you want to call these smaller groups Sunday school, nobody's going to police that. That's fine. Uh, you want to call them small groups. You want to call them home groups. You want to call them life groups. Uh, here at this church, we call them community groups because that's what they are. They fill that function of building Christian community where we can break bread together with people of a similar age and stage of life. And we study the Bible together and we grow together with our peers. We don't just need someone to mentor us or someone that we're mentoring. Sometimes you need people who are in the same stage of life that you can break bread with. It's what the early church did daily as they're seeking one another out uh, in the temple. The important thing is not what you call that small group. The name of which your small groups really doesn't matter at all. What matters is the function that we are doing, that we are breaking down from big church to smaller, to these smaller groups here. Um, does the New Testament discipleship model end there with big church publicly and from house to house? I would argue it. It does not. That they would break down in even smaller groups uh, for discipleship and mentorship purposes. Where did the church get this idea of kind of this funnel idea? Big church, smaller groups, discipleship, mentorship type relationships that produce, produce healthy disciples. I would argue that they get this model from Jesus. Remember, these disciples were discipled by Jesus, not just for a few weeks, not just a few classes, but they followed him everywhere that he went, and they learned from him as they watched him. Jesus would, sometimes he preached to large crowds, this big multitude of people. You know, he did. John 6, fed the 5,000 in this huge crowd. But did Jesus only preach to crowds? No, he didn't. We see that also he had a smaller group of men, the 70 that he sent out. We just talked about with Clay up here. He sent these men out to places he himself was about to go and to work. Beyond the 70, did Jesus have a smaller group of men that he worked with very carefully? The 12, didn't he? The disciples. But even amongst the disciples, did Jesus go even deeper than that? Have smaller, more intimate relationships with them? He did. You have the inner three, Peter, James, and John, the one that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him, the one that followed him all the way to the place where he himself was praying in Gethsemane. Jesus had a very special relationship with them, a very deep mentorship that was taking place. And beyond that, there was even someone that Jesus spent a good deal of time with, someone that, who humbly referred to himself as the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was that? It was John, wasn't it? So what do you see there? Thousands? <laughs> Seventy? Twelve? Three? One, okay? That creates a funnel, doesn't it? Okay, so this is not an accidental graphic that we're throwing up in front of you. It's providing a very clear understanding, biblically speaking, of what a path of discipleship looks like, and it's a funnel shaped. In other words, most people, we're gonna start out in this big thing we call church, and our goal is to get everybody who's in big church like this, we want our funnel to look like a cylinder someday, okay? That everybody who comes to church ultimately is a part of a small group who then ultimately engages in meaningful discipleship relationships. Are these mentorship, discipleship relationships even important? Is it the same thing as just doing another Sunday school class? I would argue, friends, it's not. It's not even close. Um, it's these, these smaller groups. Why didn't Jesus just preach to big crowds and say, that's enough to disciple people? 
the obvious answer is it's not enough to disciple people. That's why Jesus has these smaller groups. It's why he broke them down into these smaller groups and where he would even individually mentor people. It's because you can't mass produce disciples. You can't produce disciples in, in rows. And so we see this example uh, later uh, for mentorship relationships. Barnabas mentored Paul, didn't he? Often you'd see in the, in the book of Acts, it would say Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul eventually would say Paul and Barnabas. Paul got to the place where he was leading. And then did Paul take what he learned from Barnabas and pass that on to anybody? Who did Paul mentor? Timothy, Titus, and, and obviously many others. What did Paul write to that mentee? Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses do what? And trust to faithful men. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good looking. You don't even have to smell good. You just have to be faithful. You have to be here when you say you're gonna be here. Faithful men who will then be able to do what? Teach others also. Did you realize that your discipleship is not even just for you? That, you're, that God intends to use the maturity that he has placed in you to put that maturity into somebody else? And that our job as a discipler is not done until that person is discipling somebody else? It's generational discipleship. Paul taught that to his disciple. Beyond that, did Paul have anything to write to his other mentee, Titus? Well, obviously he did. That's why we're talking about it. Titus chapter 2, what did Paul say to Titus? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. In other words, you are to be a mature disciple. He said older women, likewise, just like the men, you're supposed to be mature. He says, and then when you do that, and so train the young women. And then he talks to the men again. Likewise, in other words, just like the older women are teaching the younger women and mentoring them, older men are to be teaching the young men and mentoring them. What does that sound like? You have groups that are even smaller than home groups that are meeting together intentionally to pass on the fundamentals of the faith. Older men meeting with younger men, older women meeting with younger women. You know what that sounds a lot like? Unity, Baptist churches, D groups. It's not accidental. We didn't just stumble into this. They are created because it's a biblical construct. It's a biblical framework for discipleship. Because you don't always get all the essentials for the faith just from what, I can't give you everything you need up here from this pulpit. And the truth is, I don't even know how, if, you know, how you're walking with God. You know, I don't know that Mark Renfro had his Bible devotions with, with Jesus today. I don't know that he's praying. You know, I don't know if Jacob is discouraged today or if he needs help or lifting up. Truthfully, we won't even necessarily know just because you're in a Sunday school or in a small group of some kind together. Sometimes you need those individual deep relationships that you go deep, deep, deep with. And that's what D groups provide. You know, a lot of times the, these smaller groups for the purpose of passing on the fundamentals, it's a lot like a football team. You got the big football team and the coach, he'll address the whole football team, won't he? And then he'll, he'll, he'll talk to, he'll, have break, he'll break you up with these other smaller groups, won't he, of offensive guys and, and defensive guys. And even furthermore, you got guys working with a kicker and guys, they're breaking you down to a funnel because it requires a funnel to get you fully equipped and prepared. Famous football coach, anybody recognize this fella? It's not Kevin Costner as an old man. It's, uh, it's Vince Lombardi, probably the most famous football coach, you know, maybe of all time, or at least one of them. Anyway, uh, in 1961, Vince Lombardi, he had his Green Bay Packers that he has brought back together for their training camp. And uh, the year previous, they had just lo lost a heartbreaking loss in the fourth quarter in the championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles. 
really sad. So the next training camp rolls around, the players show up, they're doing what players do, and they're thinking, hey, it's business as normal, we're just going to go about our work, and then Vince sits them all down, and he kind of shocks everybody, he just pulls out the football and gives that famous speech, you've all heard it, right? He just tells them, gentlemen, this is a football. Doesn't that seem a little bit elementary, a little bit obvious to guys who are playing at a professional level, guys who've been playing, some of them, football every week their entire life, you're going to stop and you're going to tell them this is a football? And then he proceeds to tell them about what football means. It's about blocking and, you know, passing and receiving and running and all of these things. There's certain fundamentals of football that everybody needs to know, that if you don't do them well, you're not going to win games. And so he started with the fundamentals that even professionals, people have been doing something for a long time, we need to be reminded about these fundamentals. And it's these fundamentals that we're teaching and we're passing on through our D groups. It's like sometimes I just kind of want to start over with some Christians and just be like, you know what? (laughs) Gentlemen, brothers, sisters, this is a Bible. This is God's word. God's will is, is this. If we want to know what God's will for us in our life and God's will for our church is, it's in this book. And God has given marching orders to the church. It's very specific in Matthew 28, 19, 20. We are to go into all the world and we are to make Disciples, all this other business of baptizing and teaching and stuff, it's just an outflow of making disciples. We have to go intentionally and find lost people and bring them to Jesus and not just leave them there. We don't just say, hey, we're a success. We have a whole lot of people that are willing to sit in our church. That's not success to God. What does he want us to do? He wants us to make disciples. You ever wonder why disciples are so important to God? Large crowds of people, they impress you guys, and they impress me, right? You know, we, ooh, they're big. There must be something really good going on there. Maybe, maybe not. I always say bacteria reproduces too. So just because you're reproducing a lot of people, it doesn't mean that it's a good thing. And so having a lot of people in this church building, while it may be a human desire, it's my desire, I'd love to know that we're reaching more people. Do you know that's not God's end goal for the church? What is success for a church? How do you know you're a successful church? You're following God's marching orders. You're making disciples because it's only mature disciples that glorify God. Do you know that God is not glorified by large crowds of things? Jesus in, Matthew, in John 6, he's preaching to the crowd, feeding the 5,000, which by the way was 5,000 men. You know, with women and children, that number could have swelled well beyond 20,000 people. Jesus preaches to these crowds and they all disappear. And he even looked at the 12 and asked them what? Will you also go? And the reason they stuck around, they said, where else will we go? Only you have the words of life. And so Jesus was not concerned about large crowds. Large crowds don't glorify God. Anybody can pick up a large crowd. You can go down to Paramount any weekend on any concert and get a large crowd of people. Doesn't mean they glorify God. God is glorified by a small remnant, and he always has been, a remnant of people whose hearts are fully his, who look like God, who think like God, who loves what God loves. It's mature disciples that have light that shines. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men so that they see your good works and then do what? They glorify your Father who's in heaven. How do we glorify God? It's by being a mature disciple and making mature disciples. And if we don't do that as a church, friends, I don't care how many times you meet, I don't care how big your offering is, I don't care how many people are coming to your church, we've failed as a church if we're not producing healthy disciples. I pray that you're one of them. But this discipleship process, it all begins with a commitment. We, we can't just make disciples out of anybody. I can't just go down to food fair across the street and say, hey, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You can try it. It doesn't work very well. 
being a healthy disciple of Jesus requires somebody who knows Jesus and is making a commitment to him. When Jesus called out his disciples, it began with a commitment, didn't it? They're out there and they're, they're working on their nets and things, and what does Jesus say? Leave those behind, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. It began with a commitment. Will you commit to, to playing ball Jesus' way? Will you come and do it my way? Will you follow me? Will you make that commitment? Friends, without a commitment, none of us are going to take very seriously that discipleship path. You know, even in football, again, is there commitment required to play football? At a professional level, you sign a contract, don't you? College level, is there, is there a commitment there? You sign an NLI, a National Letter of Intent. There's a commitment there. Even high school level, those of you high school football guys, I know we got some of those around here in this church. Tomcats are having a good year, aren't they, this year? How, how'd they do last night, by the way? The other night, they do all right. They didn't play? You're eight and no, aren't you, or something like that? Anyway, yeah, they're doing really well. How did they get there? How are those Tomcats doing so well this year? Yeah, I would argue that it began with a commitment. You know, football teams, they, you typically sign a letter of participation. But beyond that, I was talking to uh, Greg Jackson this week who was talking to the football coach, and he says, there is a picture that you have on the, uh, the, the locker room wall there or whatever, and it is the seven core values that they require you to commit yourself to to play Tomcat ball in Ashland. You know, and there are things like, there were these seven values, things like discipline, we not me, toughness, do the right thing, be on time, and there's all these things there, and these football players realize, if I wanna play ball, if we're gonna be a successful team, if we're gonna be a winning team, we all have to commit to, to playing the Ashland ball the Ashland way. I think maybe we'd probably do well if we would just take that sign, maybe put it over the church door every time we come in, and we just kinda slap these seven commitments when we come in the door. Just kind of a reminder as believers, we begin to be disciples with a firm commitment, a resolution. I will glorify God by being a mature disciple, not just a pew sitter, but a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, that begins, I would argue, with the commitment to be a member of a local church. All that is, and don't get scared about the term member, all it means is that you're in a committed relationship with that local church, and that local church is also committed to you. We have, ha we have an agreement and understanding. We're playing ball together as a team. Can you imagine a guy who played for Ashland Ball one week and then went over and played with Russell the next week? Is that gonna happen? He's gonna get hurt in the locker room, isn't he? And then the next week, maybe he's playing out for Boyd County, another time he's playing. We have to, at some point in time, commit and hunker down to play, play ball with a certain team. And I realize that in the church, some people have opposition to this, and I, I wanna be sensitive to that, but I also just wanna point out, I've heard, I've heard all the different reasons why people don't wanna be a member of the church. Maybe you've been hurt by a church before. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by anybody in a church before, because I know you have. But I would also say you same people have probably been hurt in your home, haven't you? Hopefully you didn't leave your wife over it. You know, you've probably been hurt at work before, haven't you? You probably didn't leave your work over it either. We get hurt in life because we bounce around like bumper cars with other humans, and humans hurt each other sometimes. But it doesn't stop us from being committed to our family, to our work, or even to our church. I've heard people say, you know, I'll come, but I won't join. I mean, I, I hear you. We're glad that you're here. We're not gonna treat you with disrespect for just attending. But just please understand what you're telling the church. You're communicating, I wanna receive from you, but please don't expect anything from me in return. And I would argue that's probably not a, a healthy or biblical model for church membership. Others yet, 
they'll say that they don't believe that the concept of church membership is even a biblical concept at all, that it's a human construct added to the church later on to get people to be faithful to church. Is that what it is? We better be careful that we're not doing something in church that is unbiblical. Is the concept of church membership a biblical concept? Well, first of all, let's look at where we even get the, ter the term member. We talk about a member of a church. Sometimes it maybe makes you think of some things that are unbiblical. Maybe you're thinking Sam's Club. You're a member. You belong here. You have certain, you paid the dues, so you have certain rights and privileges. It's not that. Or maybe you're thinking it's like uh, the Masonic Lodge or something. It's some secret fraternal order that you have JV Christians over here who just attend church, and then you've got these varsity guys, the secret club, this little cabal, you know, over here of, uh, are you a member? It's not that either. It's also not membership to a country club that you, are, that, you, that you have just these rights and privileges that you have if you're a member. It's not that at all. In fact, the biblical term for member used 24 times in the New Testament, it always refers to a limb or a body part of a body. This is a member of my body. This hand is a member. This leg is a member. Very sadly, this belly is a member of my body, okay? It provides a useful function, sometimes too useful. This is, this is a body. These are all members of my body, my head, my hair. Uh, these are all just, these are parts, and they, they serve a function in this body. I could turn to a number of different passages here. I'll turn to 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, all of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He's saying that the body of Christ has many members. Now, when we talk about the word church, we can talk about the word church universal. Some people call it big C church. Uh, the church universal, the universal church, or uh, the, the technical term is the Catholic church, not the Catholic denomination, but just Catholic just means universal. So you have the universal church. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you're part of this big organization, this, this worldwide body, spiritual body of believers. And then within that, he tells us we've been baptized, the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, baptizes into one body, but then 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says that it, we are members, we're body parts of that body. Now, how does a body part function? It has to be connected to a, an individual body. You guys are one church, aren't you? But you're also individual members of it. And even in your members, there are body parts that are serving your body. That's how it is with church membership. We are body parts attached to the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 and 16 of 1 Corinthians 12 talks about we're hands, we're feet, we're ears, we're eyes. In other words, each one of us serves a particular function. God has given you a special gift. We call it a spiritual gift, a divine enablement given to you at conversion when the Holy Spirit enters you to be able to serve one another in the church. But then in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says something very interesting. But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And so here, this is a picture of a sovereign God taking these believers who have been immersed into his body, and he is, he says, arranging these body parts in a way that fits him. This word arrange has the idea where you're putting something in a strategic position. It's used in, uh, in, of Jesus when he was teaching the, the parable of the lamp on the stand in Matthew 5.15. And Jesus says, you don't put a lamp under a bushel, do you? I mean, do you? 
you put a lamp out on a lampstand. It's been placed in a strategic position to give light. And God says that's what he does with his believers. The moment you're, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're put into the body of Christ, and then God strategically arranges you within the body of Christ into particular churches because a couple of things. One, you need what that church offers. And number two, that church needs your spiritual gift to function as a healthy church. What this tells me, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, is because God arranges each one of us as body parts into particular churches, it tells me this. None of you are here by accident. Every one of you is here because God has led you here because you need something this church has and this church needs something that the Holy Spirit has within you, a gift to attach yourself to this church and to be a functional operating member of the body of Christ. We're arranged in a specific way. It, it reminds me of the army. You know, we talk, let's talk about big A army. We talk about the army. It's just everybody in the army. Now, do we, is the army more organized than that, Greg? Is the army more organized than just this big blob of guys? We just like, hey, y'all in the army, go out there and do what seems right to you. No, you have big A army, but how does an individual member who's been trained to be a cook or an infantryman or a mechanic, how do they serve the big A army? It's by serving smaller groups, attaching themselves to smaller groups within the army. In the army, as I understand it, uh, you have at the smallest group, a fire team. You know, and we got a little graphic here we can show you that kind of illustrates, you know, some of this. You got a fire team, you got like three or four people. You know, you go ahead and read that. Uh, take my word for it. Okay, so you got these fire teams, these small groups of people at the very bottom, three or four people, very committed to one another. They know each other. They got each other's backs. But beyond this, you get, say, two or three fire teams into a squad and, you know, but then, and then pretty soon you have a platoon, which is like three to four squads. And beyond that, it just keeps going up and up and up, doesn't it? Even in the U.S. military, in the Army, they have a funnel. All the way down from the fire team to the squad, the, the platoon, and companies and battalions. And all of that comprises the big A Army. How does an individual serve the big A Army? I would argue that it's by serving these smaller companies and these smaller platoons and these squads and ultimately your brothers on the line at the fire team. And I would say so it is with a church. How do you serve the big C church, universal church? It's not just by being a good person universally out there. Hey, I mow my neighbor's grass. I even mow the half that is his on this little median that separates us because I'm a really great neighbor. You know, I, I help old ladies cross the street and I pay it forward in the drive-thru from time to time. I'm a good person, I serve Jesus that way is how do we serve the big C church? It's the same thing with the army. You've got big C church, but then you have this small, these smaller groups that God has arranged. These smaller organizations, the church that God has asked us to commit ourselves to. God has placed you here for a reason. The early church, the church at its inception back at the turn of the century, they had a very high view of church membership, even into the 200s. There's an early church father named Cyprian, and he wrote this. He said, the spouse of Christ cannot be adulterous. She's not bouncing around different places and uh, to the world. She's uncorrupted and pure. She knows one home. Later, he says, whoever is separated from the church and is joined to an adulteress is separated from the promises of the church, nor can he who forsakes the church of Christ attain to the rewards of Christ. He is a stranger. He is profane. He is the enemy. He can't think of or even imagine somebody not being committed as a believer to Jesus Christ, not being committed themselves to a local church. 
And then he says a very famous phrase, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. What's that saying? In other words, there shouldn't be any Christians who use this line. I'm spiritual but not religious. We shouldn't be saying that. The church didn't understand that. Their, their understanding is if you understand that you're part of the big C church, you're gonna be a committed member of a little C church somewhere. Nobody has God as father who does not have church as his mother. That, that we are committed. We're not just spiritual but, you know, but not religious. In other words, I wanna go to heaven, I want the benefits of God, but I have no intention of committing myself and using my gifts to serve the a local church. Well, that leads us to number two here, and this is really the kind of the, the crux of the message here, is this concept of church membership even a biblical concept? That's something we better answer because there's, most churches in America, they have a very organized church membership. Now, I hate lists, but I'm gonna give you seven things as to why church membership is biblical and essential. First thing here we're gonna see is the evidence of leadership within the churches themselves. Maybe many of you have probably heard of the, a famous pastor named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor of the Village Church, I think in like the, what is it, the DFW area or something like that. But he's the pastor of the Village Church, a very large Southern Baptist church. And he says early in his ministry, he really struggled with this concept of church membership. And is it really a biblical function? He says, until he came to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They're accountable to God. He says, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Matt Chandler says, This presented two questions for him regarding membership. The first one is, If there is no biblical requirement to belong to a local church, then which leaders should an individual Christian obey and submit to? It's a good question. He says, second and more personally, who will I as a pastor give an account for? Am I responsible giving an account to God for what believers are doing in Zimbabwe? Or even the church, other churches in Ashland, am I personally accountable to God because of what some other church in Ashland is doing? Or is it my local assembly for which we provide oversight. Hebrews, or 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2 says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and by the way, elder just means somebody who is mature in the faith, somebody who fits the qualifications of an elder, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He says, he commands to the elders, shepherd the flock of God, okay? Do the work of a pastor, feed and protect the sheep. Beyond this, he says, uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, who, he says, you know, to exercise oversight. Okay, so we have here, elder, pastor, and overseer are all talking about the same office. But what I want you to hone in on here is, which congregation are they responsible for? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is where? Among you, who's you? It's this specific local church, okay? There's a specific local church to which these elders are accountable and the people are accountable to them, okay? I have to give an account for the kind of leadership that I provide here at Unity Baptist Church. I will give an account to God one day for that, which by the way, friends, is why you're gonna discover that I'm far more concerned that God is pleased with you than whether or not you're pleased with me. I'm far more concerned that God is pleased with you. And so we're gonna lead this church in such a way that as best we know how, we're gonna point you in a way that is gonna lead a fulfilling life that pleases God. But let me ask you, 
am I accountable for what Nazarene Church across the corner here does? I'm not, why not? Because I'm committed here to this church. And so churches commit themselves into these small groups, these, these organizations that God has put together. So leadership provides a compelling reason for church membership. Who do I have oversight of? Not all the believers who live within a driving distance of me. I don't, I don't pastor everybody that I see over at Walmart, but I do serve as a pastor here. B, I would say there's records in the Bible create questions for membership. If we don't have membership, what are these records about? Uh, Acts 2.37 says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Later on in verse 47, it says the Lord added specifically to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And so, yes, while people are being added to the Big C Universal Church, we see that they're also being specifically added to their number. This is a term that means that there's a specific accounting that is taking place. The Bible kept, they kept records, and even in the early church, at the very inception of the church, they have records of people who are there and were added. It means that they're in a committed relationship with that church. We belong here. We come here. We submit to the leadership here. We use our spiritual gift here. That's ultimately what church membership looks like. Later on, uh, we'll see here that there's like Romans 16.1, Phoebe is recognized as an official servant of a particular church, the church at Syncria. Okay, that she's a specific, there's a specific church that she is in a committed relationship to and she officially represents them as a servant what would happen? I mean, Phoebe wasn't just a servant of all churches or the big C church in general, but she was specifically attached to this smaller church. If you go beyond that, 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 13 describes a role, an actual record of a particular group of people within their members, in this particular case, widows. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. There's a specific role of widows that was in the church. Well, the church had a responsibility to take care of those widows, and those widows had a responsibility to live godly lives and to serve the church. But to which church did the widows serve? Any church. And for taking care of the needs of those widows, which church was supposed to provide for their needs? It's a good question. It's the church where they were officially enrolled. What does it mean to enroll that person in a church? Well, you tell me how you would translate kata lego. Kata means with, something that is a part of something as opposed to something that's outside of something, okay? And this word lego refers to someone who has been selected as the result of using discernment. It's, it's often a term, this kata lego is a, a verse or a word used to describe a list, a catalog, or a record of something. So within the church, they had a list, a catalog, and a record of believers that were committed to them. And in particular here, these widows, the Bible had a, the church, each church had a list of widows that they were committed to individually, indicating that they were part of a, a membership. It wasn't that some church should help them, it's that we will. I would say, see, voting, Act 6, makes us ask a question. For, for voting and or appointing different positions within the church, from whom do we get these positions? By the way, if you're going to make an argument for voting in a church, is really only about one thing that you really see a lot of church, church-wide votes for, and that's for the people that represent you. You know, whether it's deacons, elders, missionaries, and things, God has us together, the full assembly of the disciples together, 
select these people out from among us. I think we see this in Acts 6, where I personally believe we have sort of a prototype deacon board that is being brought forward, a group of people dedicated to serve the church because the apostles are saying, man, we got so much work to do. We got all this work to do of prayer and ministry of the word and and teaching and discipling and evangelizing. And yet we see there's a need to take care of this group of people here, you know, these older ladies and stuff who are getting neglected in their distribution of food. These people who kind of felt alienated from the church. And it wasn't just up to them to work harder. They selected these guys out, these servants, these godly people to represent the church to take care of their needs. And it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, and the 12, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up on preaching the word to God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Now, the part I want to focus on here is when they went to select these men from among their church, it says they gathered the full number of the disciples together. What's a full number of something? If you just said it was a number of something, it just means whoever just happened to stumble through the door here that day. But when you say the full number of the disciples, they specifically gathered the full number. What are we talking about? There was a specific number of people and they had the fullness of it. That means that the church had a record of those who were in a committed relationship, a membership within that church. There was a full number of the disciples from which they appointed these, what I believe are prototype deacons. And so that's an indicator that this church had a record. There was a full number of disciples that were associated with that church. D, we see uh, church discipline. That's not a fun word. Nobody came here going, you know, I really, we haven't had enough preaching on church discipline. Uh, church discipline is a restorative tool. Just understand that. When it's done properly, it's not, it's not a negative thing. It's not a, a, a wicked thing. It's not a, a judgmental thing. It's a restorative tool for believers that are just living their lives in habitual sin. It's not loving to watch them destroy their life and say, well, judge not. <laughs> you know, here's the keys to the car. Go drive drunk. That's not a friend. And so the church discipline is the opportunity for the church to humbly and privately confront that individual and say, brother, I got some concerns. Let's talk. Let's pray. It's also a tool to remove unbelievers who are causing trouble within the church. Remember, there's unbelievers in every church. Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds, said that the enemy goes out into every wheat field where God's people are that bear fruit. He says, and he, and he sows seeds of weeds in there, and they look a lot like the wheat. And they won't be removed from that wheat necessarily until, they, until it comes time to bear fruit. Well, some of these, these unbelievers, they're not content just to come to church. They want to destroy the church. They want to create all kinds of problems within the church. And so church discipline is that opportunity for the church to remove people that are destroying the work of the church. It's not something a church longs to do, but it's, it's a tool that God gives them. Well, the reason I say all that about church discipline is that 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13 says this, it says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders, those who are outside of the church, specifically unbelievers? Is it not those inside the church, those who are within the church who are considered amongst its roles and its members who are born again? He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Let God deal with unbelievers. Don't try to change the world to look like you, Christian. It's not our job. He says, purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about church discipline at that point. 
Okay, so when we're talking about church discipline, it's an evidence of church membership because we see that there are believers who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. Understand what church membership ultimately is. It's a church's affirmation that we agree with you in your testimony that we see that you give evidence of being a believer. That's ultimately what church membership is in indicating. As a church, we identify, we've heard your testimony, it's a right testimony, but furthermore, we see you are living rightly before God and we agree with you, we believe that you are a child of God. That's why in church membership, when somebody's removed from the church, I personally don't believe that it means we bar the doors and say, ah, you're not welcome here, because the Bible says simply to treat them as an unbeliever. How do we treat unbelievers? Are unbelievers welcome to come to unity? They are, and if they come here, and I don't care how they're dressed, or how they act, or how they talk, you treat them with love and kindness. And so, a person who is an unbeliever, we treat them as an unbeliever. You can come to church, but you're not gonna be a member. You're not gonna be voting, you're not gonna be serving in teaching positions, you're not going to be serving in administrative roles, you're not gonna influence where this church goes. You are put outside of the church, I would argue, outside of church membership. We have removed our stamp of approval that we believe that we agree with you with your testimony that you're a believer. We've seen through your lifestyle that you have a, a habitual, unrepentant spirit, and that's not how believers act. The church removes that. E, what about the Pauline epistles? Epistles are just letters. He write, Paul writes letters to different churches, to the church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, I write. And so Paul is writing to specific churches, okay? These are individual churches. Paul has an understanding that there's a committed group of people over here. And when he does, furthermore, from passages like Romans 16, we see that when Paul writes to these churches, he fully expects there's certain members who will be at that church and not some other church. Okay, so Romans 16, you'll, you know, you'll see things like, you know, you know greet, uh, he gives all these fun names that you love to pronounce. Greet Epinetus, greet Mary, who has, he says, worked hard for you. Who's you? It's the church that Mary is a committed member of. He says, uh, greet Andronicus and Junia, greet Ampliatus. Now, now, how did Paul know that these people were even gonna be at that church when this letter arrived? It's because they were in a committed membership relationship. They were on that rolls of that church. Paul knew full well they were connected in a vital and meaningful way. They were a member. They were a functioning body part. She, Mary, she is serving you. She is a body part attached to the body. She's receiving nutrients from the body. The church is feeding her. But also, she, as a hand, Mary is doing stuff, and she is helping the church in return. That is a healthy church member. You are receiving feeding from the church and help and encouragement from the church, but also you're you're contributing back using your spiritual gift. I would argue that F, the appointment of elders, indicates a church membership. Paul commissioned Titus to ordain elders in every city. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, in every city where they planted a church, they had a, a plurality of elders that they would set apart in each one of those churches. That's what this verse is saying. Now, who are those elders overseeing? Every church everywhere? No, that was an apostolic function, a, a role we don't have today. The Bible talks about how apostles and prophets were for the foundation of the church. Building on that foundation, now we have individual churches over which we have these different elders that Paul told Titus to go ahead and appoint in every town. They were over their individual church. There was a committed relationship with a specific group of people. 
And finally, I'm just going to give you here G. You said, man, that's how I feel. When are you going to get to the end of this list? Uh, this is the last number on the list here, and we're, we'll be done. The importance of church membership is also communicated in every spiritual gift passage in the Bible. Go ahead and read them. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Each one of those spiritual gifts passages talks about gifts that God has given to you. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have a spiritual gift. And a gift is a divine enablement. It's not singing or swinging a hammer. A, a spiritual gift is a divine enablement God gave you. It may be service, maybe mercy, maybe teaching that you're, going to, you're supposed to use within the body of Christ. As soon as the Holy Spirit entered into your life at conversion, God gave you an ability. And you have officially become a member of the Big C Church. And now God has an expectation that you're going to commit the use of that as a hand or a foot or whatever to a local body, a local church to be a part of it. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, four through seven, I'll just read part of it. It says, now there are varieties of gifts we're not all made the same in Jesus. We're not all supposed to serve in the same way. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, and that's just an evidence of the Spirit of God that is within you. How does, how does the Holy Spirit reveal himself to you? Well, uh, you know, we see that the Holy Spirit is within you through the fruit of the Spirit, but also the manifestation of your gifting, that you are serving God in some way. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God is in you, that you're serving the church. He says, everyone is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Who is the common good? Just of church in general? No, it's, it's of a specific body of believers that we are a committed body part. That's what a member means, remember? It's a body part, it's a limb. Can you imagine body parts if they weren't committed to you as a body? Can you imagine it's just physiologically if all of us were continually having body transplants? You know, and you know, I have one arm today and then the next week I may have somebody else's arm on me. You know, I'm going in for surgery. I have, I have my liver today, but I have somebody else's liver tomorrow. Is that a healthy body? You're constantly just healing yourself. You're never functioning as a body. You're always hurt and wounded. Friends, that's the state of most churches in America. You got body parts who are like, woohoo, I'm going to heaven. I'm part of Big C Church. And I'm so excited to go to heaven. Hot dog, I love Jesus. And, but they never commit to one church. They go here until something, eh, they don't really like it, and then they move on. And they transplant that body part to another body. And then something happens there, and somebody didn't like your idea for the decoration for the, the Easter tables for their luncheon. And so you got mad, and you're going to leave, and you're going to go to another church. And you go to that church and you realize, you know what, they're full of fallen people too. And that person didn't remember my birthday. I don't want to go to a church where people don't remember my birthday. I'm going to leave. And then they, we just keep doing body transplants of our limb to all kinds of different churches. And the result is the body of Christ is a bloody mess. We're just always in this state of being transplanted. God wants us as members to be a committed body part. I'm going to hunker down Come what may, I'm gonna serve Jesus by serving this local church. I'm gonna serve the big C church by serving this little C church right here. I'm gonna be a body part that that body can count on. It's not healthy to have body parts that aren't connected to a body, is it? I'm gonna imagine you, we're gonna dismiss you in prayer someday, you're taking it by faith. We're gonna dismiss you in prayer. You go out to the parking lot and you see a severed hand in the parking lot. What's going through your head? good for you. Stick it to the man. You don't need to be a part of a body. You can do this on your own. Are you thinking that? You see the severed hand. What's going through it? Shock? Horror? 
both for the hand and the person who lost it, right? Because you look at that hand, that hand is bleeding out on the street by itself, and you're thinking, that hand doesn't have long for this world. And you're thinking, there's a fellow over here who is handless. I don't even know how he drove home. You're concerned. You're like, this is cause for alarm. It's, I remember as a little kid, I have a very vivid memory of my dad. He was a very handy kind of fellow, and he was fabricating a trailer, okay? And he was you know, welding and things. And, and there were like these two pieces of the trailer that come together with these little holes that had to line up. And you, he was gonna stick a pin through it. And he had one side blocked up somehow. And, and he, had, he was holding his hand up there and you see where this is going. He had his pinky stuck in that hole at the time for some reason and like a paper cutter. Two parts of that trailer just came, came down on each other and just sheared off his little pinky. Now, my father's reaction was not simply, hmm. I still have nine fingers. I'd say it's a pretty good day still. He took action right away. Trailer didn't even matter anymore. This is more important. So he takes this pinky. He, he grabs his pinky in one hand. He covers his hand with a, this rag, and he's bleeding out everywhere. And I just remember as a kid, there's yelling and shouting. They go off to the doctor, and they, they were able to get it reattached. Why was all the fuss about getting my dad's pinky reattached to him? I mean, it's a small part, Right? Now, I've been told by physical therapists, your pinky, actually, without a pinky, you lose as much as 50% of your hand strength. Did you realize that? You'll, you'll never look at your pinky the same way again. That's an important finger you got there. Yeah, it's the smallest of your fingers. It's the one you forget about. But without that pinky, you lose a whole lot of your hand strength. So even small parts matter, small parts that aren't attached, small parts that are not doing their job affect the body in very real ways. Friends, that is a believer, as a member, and as a body part of the church. When you're severed from the church or you're not performing your function, guys, there's something very seriously wrong with the church and it's, it's gonna hurt you too. And so I just invite you today, friends, go down the unity funnel. It's a biblical construct of discipleship. But the first step to really making the most of your discipleship process here at this church is, would you consider committing yourself to this body and allow us to commit ourselves to you? We love you, we're glad that you're here. We'd like to enter into a committed relationship with you. If God lays that on your heart, please consider being a member of the church. If you don't want, you just want to come here and be a part of the church, we're not going to big time you. We're not going to, we're not going to bully you or pressure you. We're not going to treat you worse. We're going to treat you kindly, lovingly, and respectfully. But just understand, the New Testament example is that believers commit themselves and serve the big C church by being a body part in some little C church somewhere. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we study your word that you have given us opportunity to to see what is this fuss about the church and why it's important and why it's important that we have a committed relationship with it. I pray, Lord, that you would lay it on each one of our hearts, not just to be a, on a roll at a church, but to be a, a committed, functioning body part within this body. And as, we about, as we're about to enjoy the Lord's Supper together, Father, we unite us together as believers in, in one body that each one of us would commit to being a part of a body and functioning members of it. God, draw us to you as you unite us together in your love. We ask in Christ. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, 
With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.